another episode of Your Words Against Mine, a competitive reading podcast between siblings. I'm your sister co-host, Elizabeth Connor. And I'm your brother co-host, Thomas Dempsey. So, Thomas, how's it been? Hello. Welcome to month two. Yeah, month two. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, feels like time being what it is, the last first part of the month always feels the longest. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it, it feels like, it, and especially in between recordings, it feels like you're not just dealing in two weeks. Mm-hmm. But uh, you've been getting up to anything interesting? Um, You had your here. conference the other week. Yeah, so not this past week, but the week before, um, I went to Columbia for the South Carolina Music Educator Association Conference. And I don't... cool. And, like, I was looking back on it, and I have not been... I have not gone to that conference since 2019. Yeah, that's... I mean, it makes sense, because that's the year before COVID. Yeah. Um, And even when I went in 2019, I did not, like... Well, when I went in 2019, um, I didn't spend the night in Columbia. I like just went back and forth from Columbia or from Florence to Columbia. Yeah. And uh, that was a lot. That was a lot of driving. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm really glad that this time I was able to like stay in a hotel room. And um, uh, I did get by to see you when you were in Columbia. That was fun. You did. Yeah. So the conference was like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. And you came down Thursday and we went out to dinner. Yeah. I had that nice Korean place. Mm-hmm. With like the really chewy noodles. Yeah. The the glass noodles. Yeah. Those are good. Mm-hmm. And we both had lots of leftovers, so I was able to enjoy those more. Yeah. I didn't actually get to finish mine, but that, I mean, you know. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, got some book shopping in while we were there. Went to the loneliest little Barnes and Noble in all of yeah. North Carolina. It's like, yeah. It's like the only store in like a very dead mall. Yeah. And the access route is this really like steep incline off of a side road. Mm-hmm. And the it's just sort of out of the way. But they had a good selection, and they had a lot of nice offer, like sales. Uh, yeah. Deals going on. So I wonder if how well they do, in spite of all that. Um. Like obviously, the mall at one point used to be like a thriving place to to be and work. So there's like an attached parking garage and. Yeah. We accidentally went into the parking garage trying to get into it, and that was, like, the most terrifying experience I've ever had. Uh, well, it was pretty creepy, but it, it's better. It was at, at least, was it more or less scary that we didn't see anybody in there? Like, if I'd seen some people I, hanging out, I might have been a little more put. Perturbed. Yeah, now, if, like, we had seen people in there, that would have been extra terrifying, but... Uh, course in your defense i'm more accustomed to driving around cities at night uh from my yeah. drive, uh, delivery job and from that's true yeah be, so it didn't really put me off my game as much mm-hmm. but yeah we we got a little bit of book shopping gun there i got some uh earlier that day at the second charles up off harbison yeah and uh I tell you, I had the I had the worst thing that could happen for any book collector or book shopper is I oh, bought no. a book at uh, Barnes and Noble full retail price, and then the other day I was in Second and Charles and looked, and they had the exact same book in relatively good condition for like half off. Yeah. Hate that. Yeah. And I, I bought it at Barnes and Noble because it's the sort of thing where like, well, when am I ever gonna find this again? It's not like a common <laughs> stock item. And right. not only it was, uh, for those listening, it was volume two of the manga series Urusei Yatsura. And uh, there's like, I think 14 something volumes of it. And uh, I, you can usually find the first volume at least, or a couple of mid-series volumes in stock at a Barnes & Noble here or there. 
but uh, the full series run is a little more difficult to come by if you're not just ordering it online. Yeah. So I went to Second and Charles, and not only did they have Volume 2, they had everything up to Volume 13 for, like, anywhere from 75 to 50% off. Mm. And I held off on getting anything because sometimes uh, Second and Charles will do, like, a weekend sales. Where right. if you show them a coupon on your phone, then they'll take off like 10% or yeah. whatever. But uh, now I'm worrying that uh, because I didn't jump on it at the time that somebody else might have swooped in and picked them all up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you ever have that sort of buyer's remorse where there was something like you've been looking for, but you weren't sure about getting it right at that moment, and then somebody else? Yeah, um... I, I have. I've had that several times where, like, I'll see something that I want or I'll see something and I'll be like, oh, well, you know, I need to think about this a little more. Or I've seen the item, like, two and three and four times and I'm like, well, I need to think about this a little more. And then when I finally decide to buy it, I go to buy it and it's, like, not available. It's not available online. It's, you know, like, you can't find it. So, at no, this so point... So, with you, it's I, more the case that, like, you'll see it multiple times and just grow complacent complacent about its availability yeah sure. so at this point it's like if i still see that item if i see the item and i still want it after like the third time yeah. then i'll buy it right um That's... now yesterday i went to target after work to like just grab a couple things and then i looked around as you do yeah. And I found this really fuzzy, like, heart-shaped pillow. Uh-huh. Because, you know, like, they have home decor for Valentine's Day. Yeah. And it was the only one left. And I was like, oh, well, like, I don't really, like, I don't really do decorative pillows or whatever. But, like, the pillow was so soft. And I was, like, standing in the aisle petting the pillow uh. for five minutes. Wow. And then I was like, I know if I don't make this purchase, like, I'm going to regret it. So I, I bought it. Okay. Well, that's cool. And I did put, and I did put back things that I did not want as much. That's always good. So. Yeah, I feel like uh, there have been times in my life, especially when I was trying to rein in my uh, just sort of spur of the moment shopping. And the best yeah. way to do that from my experience is just to let yourself walk around with a thing for like yeah. maybe 20, 30 minutes or so and then if you can talk yourself out of getting it by the time you're ready to leave then then you're uh, in a good spot yeah I do that all the time or at least I used to do that all the time like yeah. when I actually went shopping in person more I would see something and like it and put it in my buggy or in my bag or cart or whatever Sure. And then after finishing up my shopping, like kind of looking back through it, I'm like, I don't really want that anymore. So then you go put it back. Yeah. So, yeah, that is a great tactic to do. Yeah. So you've been uh, engaging in any non-reading lately? Um. So while I was at the conference, and I made a TikTok about this that I think maybe you saw. Um. So I kind of made like a like a resolution to myself that I was going to increase my pop culture knowledge because I don't really watch a whole lot of TV and I don't really watch like a ton of movies. Sure. Um, like I read, I like consume social media and I watch sports and that's pretty much it. Right. Um, so anyway, I just, and it's not that, I don't know. And it's, I just feel like I'm missing out on the conversation basically when people talk about TV shows and movies. Oh yeah. Because so many times people will be like, oh, well, have you seen this? And I'm like, no. Hmm. Yep. And so anyway, I decided that I was going to fix that. So I hmm. looked up like, you know, the top 100 TV shows or whatever. And right. I found one from, uh, I found an article from Rolling Stone from like September of last year. And uh, anyway, I was kind of, I made a TikTok about how I found this article and how I was going to like work through the article starting with show number 100. Okay. Um. So show number 100 is What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah. Um, the TV show. Yeah. So, and it's like only available on Hulu. Uh-huh. So I, I re-downloaded Hulu and like I've watched the first two 
episodes. Okay. And then every time I go to watch the third episode, like, I'm, it's usually when I'm going to bed and, like, I take my iPad with me and, like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch the third episode in bed. And then I get to bed and I'm like, I'm sleepy. Oh, yeah. So, so far, I've only watched the first two episodes. And I think okay. I'm going to have to rewatch them because it's been over a week. Is there, like, a plot continuity you need to keep up with? Kind of. Okay. Um, I can, there, it, there's like the beginning of one. Okay. Well, sure. All right. But yeah, you enjoyed um, it so far? Um, well, so far it, it's funny in a stupid way. Oh, sure. So oh. we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's always interesting to see, especially with comedies. I think, uh, there needs to be some room for the premise and the characters to sort of get fleshed out. Yeah. Yeah. Before they really start cutting loose. So, but like uh, I said, I've only seen the first two episodes. Sure. Now, what is nice is it's a 30-minute show. Oh, okay. So, it's not long. So, you could... So, like, you know, if I do go to bed and I'm not sleepy right away, I could watch a 30-minute show and then go to sleep. Right. But it it sounds like that's not often the case. Yeah. Usually, I just go to bed and I'm like, I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep now. Yeah. And right before bed is usually a big reading time for me. Mm -hmm. So, um... So, I... I have been watching a bit of television, though. The other week, I got... Me, uh, mom, and dad started on this reality show on Peacock called Traitors, mm-hmm. and it's set at it's set in Scotland. Although I mean, it takes place in Scotland, but the contestants are all American, seemingly. And uh, I'm forgetting who the host is. But he's like a Scottish actor. He was on that show, The Good Wife. Yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, the premise of the show is that like 20 people half of them former reality tv stars or current reality tv stars in the case of i think one of the housewives Mm -hmm. Um, 10 of them and then 10 just normal like everyday working people are uh are brought to this castle and among them a certain number i don't know if it's ever made explicit how many of them will be selected but in the case of this first season it was three are Mm -hmm. picked at random seemingly to be uh, traitors and Mm -hmm. then over the course of 10 days at this castle all these contestants are competing in like collaborative games and competitions to win money that is put into a collective pot and at the end of the Mm -hmm. competition the pot is split amongst the winners like the people still stuck around and okay. The way the way the game goes is that at the end of every day, all the contestants gather around and vote out who they think might be one of the traitors. Mm-hmm. And if they uh, they vote somebody out, and then the person who's voted out has to declare whether or not they were a traitor. And if they weren't, then they're I mean they're gone either way. But basically, that happens. And then after that happens, every night the remaining traitors gather together and pick one of the non-traitor players to be murdered Mm -hmm. so basically just to be kicked out uh like no fanfare yeah so this goes on and i won't give it away because it's a pretty engaging show minute to minute but there's a lot Mm -hmm. of like wrinkles introduced the dynamics of people being suspicious of one another and okay uh, rules that are introduced late in the game to sort of shake things up i will mm-hmm. say though i'm sure in the moment of playing it these people feel like their rationale is fairly sound and i'm sure a lot of it is just needing to ham it up for the sake of compelling television but mm-hmm. after a while you do start to like wonder how like savvy any of these players really are because the justifications for voting for any given person are just really like facile and mm-hmm. it really just amounts to people like looking at each other and saying i am not a traitor you've got to believe me and their rationale or like their the logic behind any given person being a traitor like with rare exception just amounts to well they said they are or it, it's really just coming down to like randomness basically mm-hmm. And with rare exception, they never really acknowledge that element of it. Mm-hmm. So, but all the same, I mean, I'm not, I sound like I'm being critical of it. It's a really great show. Like, we watched all ten episodes in the span of about a week. And, okay. Uh, yeah, I had a really fun time with it. Cool. And 
Yeah. And I, I presume they'll be doing more seasons later on, but they've just got the one season up for now, so. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's been a good little chunk of time there. Are you ready to start talking books? Um, so I read one. <laughs> oh, wow. And was it the book for this episode? <laughs> it was. Awesome. Okay, well, we'll, uh, uh, I cut to the chase more or less, except for the fact that I, in addition to the book I read for this week, which I finished prior to the last episode, uh, I've read five books. Wow. Look at, look at that. The roles being reversed. Yeah. I mean, granted, a couple of these books were very small. I read two books in the span of a single day. Mm-hmm. Because they're, one was a collection of, uh ostensibly children's stories and the other yeah. was basically just a like an 80 page long essay mm-hmm. so combined they amassed like just over uh, just about 130 pages so it's so it's two very short books amounting to the length of a short book okay basically. and they were both written by the same author uh it's clarice lespector and uh-huh. one is called The Woman Who Killed the Fish. That's the collection of short stories. And uh, Agua Viva is the name of like the more like fiction. It's kind of a fictional essay style book where it basically amounts to an 80 page long rumination on mortality and art. But it's written uh-huh. from a fictionalized perspective. So it's not just Clarice Lispector writing about this stuff in her own voice ostensibly but in the perspective of a painter who is consumed with uh anxieties about death uh-huh. and i, I uh, in reading this book that preoccupation with death is such that i wondered uh like at what point in the specter's life it was written because i read uh-huh. uh the kangaroo notebook earlier and that was written at the very end of its author's life so but Clarice Lispector died in like 1977 and this book was published I think in 72 or 73 and Uh I think it was like an illness that ultimately took her so I don't know how like how sick she was or how like close to death she was feeling at the time but at any rate it's uh it's a pretty trippy book honestly it sort of bounces around from subject to subject and in almost non-linear fashion so it's uh-huh. all, it's like been praised for a long time as a kind of like uh, transcend transcendentalist sort of text. Uh-huh. Like you're you don't so much understand the full continuity or rationale of everything so much as you like meditate on it. Uh-huh. So it was a, it was a pretty fun read in that regard. And uh, the woman who killed the fish is a collection of four short stories written by Lispector. Uh, ostensibly for children although there are certain parts of it that sort of lead you to wonder how much of that is just a pretense for like writing for adults in a fashion resembling like a children's book uh-huh. but uh, it's a collection of four stories that all focus on animals and like the first story is the specter asks herself writing about her history with various pets that she's had and like how she felt like she did as a pet owner and it all culminates in the the time that she had to babysit her son's pet fish and how she forgot to feed them one day and they both died oh yeah and then there's another story that's like told from the perspective of her neighbor's dog and there's a story told from the perspective of one of her neighbor's chickens and there's just a bunch of like little that's sort of the framing device around the rest of them is that there's this specific animal that she knows of or has a relationship with that she's just sort of uh, uh, personifying and having fun with. So it, okay. it's, I, I love her writing style. It's very playful and uh, like ambitious in its way, like uh-huh. stylistically. So I definitely give it a recommend. They're both available from New Direction Publishing. Uh-huh. So those were uh, two of the two shortest books I read. The rest of them, okay. one I told you about, I think, when we were last, when we met up uh, in Columbia, is Joan uh-huh. Didion's Slouching Towards Bethlehem. 
It's yeah. a collection of journalism and eth- essays by Joan Didion written back in the late 60s or throughout the 60s mm-hmm. and then collected in like 67, 68. And it's Joan Didion was a journalist and uh, essayist and uh, ulti- ultimately novelist um, who passed away in 2021 at the age of 87. So I think in the 60s, she was like in her 20s or 30s. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, much of it is written about like her life and observations of life and celebrity out in California, which is where okay. her family is from. And then the final essay is about uh, the time she spent in her 20s living in New York City. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like uh, the whole thing sort of forms this understanding of a person's relationship to a specific place and a part of the country in a specific time and history. And the events going on and the people, like personalities that are sort of shaping the the feel of things. Mm-hmm. The titular essay, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, is about, kind of vaguely about, like, teenage runaways and the, like, hippie movement in California. Mm-hmm. And the power dynamics that inform that uh, whole time, especially in the latter half of the decade where things were sort of starting to curdle on that mm-hmm. yeah so it, it was a really good read and uh okay the one i read after or in conjunction with that was uh jewel verne's around the world in 80 days oh cool now have you ever read jules verne nope okay i know you read treasure island or something like that <laughs> maybe uh, a, a year or two but you read um something by uh robert louis stevenson i want to say Oh, that that was the Suicide Club. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this is uh, an adventure story from that general, like eight late nineteenth century period, and mm-hmm. uh, or mid to late. I think it was like written in eighteen seventies uh, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the uh, pe- most people know the story. It's like a do- a guy. And his manservant from London traveling around the world in 80 days. And in most popular conceptions of the story, there's like a big deal made of like these people traveling around in a hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be wholly an invention of like cinematic adaptations. Because mm-hmm. the text of the book itself is largely contained to just like trains and uh, boats. And the, the lone like unique means of traversal was an elephant that they take through the Indian jungle for a stretch. Mm-hmm. And really what the book amounts to is like a sort of a fantastical imagining of like Europe, like uh, British imperial logistical routes. Yeah. Cause it's like them taking like timetables and stuff and getting to places and very orderly fashion and then along the way there's like encounters with uh, indian tribes and like japanese acrobats and uh native american uh tribes and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. it's all very like eurocentric in its perspective and so obviously it's like quite dated and all but it's you know it's fairly readable as far as it goes and uh there's an element of intrigue where the um, main character Phileas Fogg is suspected of being a bank robber, and like yeah, the, the and like the traveling around the world basically being a pretext of fleeing the law. So mm-hmm. there's some interesting stuff done with that, but it, it it's basically just a, a curio, I guess, at this point, uh, as far as like its influence on the adventure genre and sort of being a seminal text of one of the more influential writers of the time okay yeah so but i enjoyed it all the same for what it was and uh the last book i read was dark or d apostrophe a r c and uh it is the sequel to mort by robert rapino which is the first in the uh war with no name series which is the uh the series that uh previous book i read this year cul-de-sac belongs to and that is the series mm-hmm. wherein ants have attained sentience and taken over the world 
Mm-hmm. And so they are at war with humanity, and as a part of their war on humanity, they imbue, uh, I think, the majority of like animal life with sentience mm-hmm. and anthropomorphism. So basically, yeah. they mutate a lot of an- different animal species into like uh, bipedal, like uh, anthropomorphic versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And then these animals start engaging in war with humans. And uh, this book takes place ostensibly after the end of the war, where the ant queen has been defeated and the humans and animals are sort of like establishing a shaky truce and mm-hmm. are trying to like reform civilization to account for like everybody's existence. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, at the start of the book, the hero of the previous novel, Mort, and who has reunited with uh, this dog named Chiba, who was like his best friend before the change, as it's called. Mm-hmm. They uh, they are like settling in at uh, this farm that Mort starts, and and it's basically just about them being drawn back into the events of the larger world. And Shiva sort of coming to understand her own identity post-change because she, like, remained a dog through much of it. And then at the end of the last book, Mort gave her uh, this pill thing that sort of imbued her, that brought about the change in her, imbued her with, like, sentience and whatnot. So it's sort of her coming into her, like, learning about herself as a person and Mort sort of having to come to terms with, like, his like relationship with others and his isolationism basically in the face of like larger events mm-hmm. so it's robert rapino is a really great like adventure story writer i told you mm-hmm. i really enjoyed cul-de-sac and uh it's like pacing and uh the way it spools out like world building information and character dynamics and mm-hmm. this this book being much longer than that one this is nearly 400 pages so there's a lot more going on and in some ways it drags a little more and in others like it's very engaging as far as like set pieces are concerned mm-hmm. so uh, I quite like it and there's one more book in the series that I haven't read but I've got so I'll probably be starting on it soon but, okay uh, yeah it's a uh, a series I'm interested to see where it goes, and this last book wrapped up fairly neatly. So he, he, Robert Rapino's leaving himself basically a, a fresh start for whatever the next story wants to tell is. Okay. Yeah. So that was the uh, arc, and uh, uh, yeah, basically no real like stinkers, I guess, as far as uh, this week's reading has gone. Okay. Yeah. And so I've talked for quite a bit, uh, unusually. So <laughs> now we're going to take a quick break and we get back. Elizabeth, you can uh, lead the discussion about uh, this week's reading challenge. Sure. All right. We'll see you all in a minute. And welcome back. Uh, it's your words against mine, a competitive reading podcast. Uh, we've sorted through all the other stuff we need to talk about for the moment. So now it's finally time to get to this week's reading challenge. Uh, a couple we- about a month back, I assigned for us to read uh, Paul Tremblay's The Cabin at the End of the World. And uh, as listeners will know, I finished it fairly quickly. And mm-hmm. Elizabeth, uh, I can presume you read it as well? I did, yes. And I oh, finished okay. it today before we started recording. That's cool. So let's uh, let's talk about it. Why don't you tell us what it what's the book's about? So, um, the book is about a family who is on vacation. Um, it is a couple, their names are Andrew and Eric, and they have a daughter. Her name is Wen, which is short for Wenling. And Wenling is out, and the book opens with uh, Wenling being out in the front yard catching grasshoppers when a stranger who introduces himself as Leonard, uh, comes up and begins to, and like introduces himself, starts a conversation and starts catching the grasshoppers with Wynn. And 
they just kind of like sit and have a conversation and then Leonard starts to apologize about things that are going to happen. And then Wen sees three more people who are dressed similarly to Leonard start walking up towards the cabin to which Wen, um, who by the way is like seven years old, like almost eight. Uh, and, and so then she's like, Oh, okay. This is not as cool as I thought it was. So then she runs into the house to get her parents. And then that's where kind of the action starts. Okay. Yeah. And so it's a home invasion thriller essentially. And it's a terrifying one. Oh yeah. You, it was pretty intense. (laughs) I haven't read a Stephen King novel in a while, but I'd got big Stephen King vibes from this. Okay. So I know you, well, I don't think this is the reason why you assigned it, but I know that you assigned this book because there's a movie coming out. Yeah. There, it, it's What's the movie's been released name? at this point. Yeah. The movie's been released. What's the name of the movie? It's called Knock at the Cabin. Knock at the Cabin. And right. So it has a different title yeah. than this book. And right. it, and like, at least in all of like the promos that I saw, it was never said based on the best-selling book or whatever. Yeah, that's been a big thing, especially on Book Talk, uh, that none of the advertising for the film is crediting the uh, author, Paul Tremblay. Yeah. With the story, at least. And yeah. there's, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there was some arrangement worked out in acquiring the uh, film rights that, I guess, gave them credit to do that. But, now, uh, when I went looking for the when I went looking for the book, um, on the cover of the book, it said now a best selling mo- or now a now a major motion picture. Okay. So it may have been a thing of like the movie wasn't going to publicize it at least not right away, but yeah. like the book was allowed to, or like reprintings of the book was allowed to. Yeah. Um, but when I so when so after the home invasion happens and like the action begins to take place. I, I don't know if this thought was influenced because I know M. Night Shyamalan and his who directs Knock at a Cabin. Yeah. But I, in my head, I was like, this screams M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, yeah. To me. Like, yeah. And it, and, and it very much reminded me of, like, Lady in the Water. Okay, I never... I don't... I know... We saw that film playing on television one day, but I never sat down to watch it. And and maybe, maybe I paid attention to it because like I very distinctly remember watching that movie and like remember how that movie made me feel. Yeah. Um. Now I would say, from so, my understanding of that film's story, this this plot is much darker, like more. Oh, intense. this. This this plot is much darker, but I guess in terms of the normal people are called to save the world under not normal circumstances. Sure, I get that. Like, that is very similar. Okay. And I think that the plot is sort of in keeping with a lot of Shyamalan's interests as of late. Like, seemingly the last several films he's done from uh, the, the Visit to... Mm-hmm old to um I don't, he didn't direct this one but he was producer on a film called devil where there was like five people trapped in an elevator and like they mm. kept progressively getting killed off by something oh so it's def- it's definitely a recurring theme in these films where like people are trapped in an uh, isolated location and bad things start happening to them progressively mm-hmm. so uh yeah, I could I could also see this as being like appealing to Shyamalan's sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So now seemingly there's like some differences between the movie and the book. And mm-hmm. I don't know how much we're going to get into the ending of the book, but uh, obviously a lot of that's going to be due to the nature of the form because mm-hmm. there's a lot of like kinds of storytelling that the book is engaged with that you're not sure how that would uh, transfer to a movie version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, so, like that, this is the first thing I've ever read by Paul Tremblay. I've heard good work, good word about several of the other books. 
Okay. Um, so yeah, I just kind of figured that we were going to like not touch the ending because we wouldn't want to ruin it for. Yeah. Yeah. For, for our readers. Listeners. Yeah. I, I, and I didn't know how much we wanted to talk around it because I do think that the ending does some pretty interesting, uh, interesting twists or like, mm-hmm. um, the nature of the twist of the book is surprising because I guess we can go ahead and talk about the conceit. The conceit is that like the end of the world of the title is literal or uh, not literal, but basically the conceit of the book is that these people who are invading this family's uh, vacation home and Mm -hmm. uh, holding them hostage are doing so under the pretense that the end of the world is approaching. And Mm -hmm. if, the the members of this family don't choose one of them to sacrifice yeah then the world will come to an end yeah and the uh the tension of the book basically amounts to how much of that is true and like because obviously you were reading a book we're under the impression that like supernatural uh events are like possible yeah so like how so throughout the book you're just wondering are you reading a book a supernatural story where uh like these people can actually influence ongoing events or are we reading a psychological thriller where the pretense of the supernatural is just facilitating like like dark human behavior yeah i really liked how the discovery around Redmond. Oh yeah, that was a great little segment. I really liked that little, and that was another, and that was another thing that to me, like, was very much like M Night Shyamalan because I could see how, I don't know, I feel like there is a little something of that in most of his films, where it's like this one little hiccup kind of causes. The people who so adamantly believe whatever it is that they believe to begin to question. That's that's true, and um, it's interesting that that character is played by Rupert Grint, the actor mm-hmm. who played Ron Weasley in the Harry Potter movies. No, he's not. He is. Oh I, my gosh! Because I've seen I've seen the trailers, and uh, I don't know how that character is portrayed because obviously, um, uh, goodness. Uh, Dave Batista is playing the main like invader named Leonard. Yeah. And that is a much clear one-to-one for that character. He's described in the book as being very large and sort of like well-kempt. And you Although look he's at the very tra- young in oh, the yeah, book. He is portrayed as much younger in the book. So that they've definitely aging him up. But apart from that, I feel like it's a, it's a pretty easy like like leap to make with that character and this actor like reading the book Mm -hmm. i was very i was able to very easily picture batista as the him yeah but uh but for like the rupert grint thing like his character is almost is like much burlier and yeah because in the uh because in the book like redmond is I don't know. He's like kind of depicted to be in like what his fifties and well, I was thinking very like, like maybe like late thirties, early forties. Yeah. Well, and I maybe in my head I was a picture. I was picturing him to be older, but he's, you know, like heavy set guy. Like yeah. obviously, kind of lives like or kind of looks like like he's lived a hard life. Yeah. Very and, salt uh, of the earth type of dude. And Rupert Grint at this point just looks like an old Ron Weasley. Or like yeah, a thirty-something Ron Weasley. Yeah. Right. I don't know that I've ever seen Rupert Grant try to put on a or try to affect an American accent. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I the only other thing I know he was in, apart from the Harry Potter movies, was this one movie that was like a fictionalized. It was a movie about faking the moon landing, basically, with like him uh-huh. and. Uh, What's his face? The big guy from that Beauty and the Beast TV show. He was Hellboy. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman, yeah. Him and Ron Perlman were in a movie that was about, like, the conspiracy about faking the moon landing. 
And, like, I know he's been it, because, like, you know, at one point, like, I thought Rupert Grant was, like, the cutest thing ever, so I was, like, super into, or trying to, like, look up what movies he had been in and stuff, and, um, I forget, like, I know he's been in some, like, independent, some independent films, but, honest to goodness, the other big thing I know he's done is he, uh, he was in an Ed Sheeran, uh, he was in an Ed Sheeran music video because it was so, because people like would look at Ed Sheeran and they would be like, is that Ron Weasley? Oh yeah. Or, or they would see like Rupert Grint outside of Harry Potter and be like, is that Ed Sheeran? Oh yeah. I get that. Are they both uh, Scottish or whatever Rupert Grint's nationality is? Um, Rupert Grint is British and I, now Ed Sheeran, I don't know. Okay. I don't know if he's British or Scottish. I yeah. just he's from over there somewhere yeah yeah i i, I know uh, oh goodness daniel radcliffe has definitely had the more prolific i think character actor career post harry potter yeah uh, i mean emma watson has done some stuff yeah but I, I, yeah, I, that's see, her name. I see her more as assuming a more leading lady role like more she's yeah. had more a conventional uh career i'd say whereas Daniel Radcliffe has taken a hard turn into like quirky indie film like character stuff. You want to know you want to know which uh which Harry Potter character has like really ridden those ri- really ridden the coattails of that franchise is um oh he played Draco what was his name Tom something. Yeah, oh, I know who you're talking about. The guy who played Malfoy. You know who I'm talking yeah. about? Like he, he has in? really ridden the coattails of his uh Harry Potter uh fame. Was he was was he in uh, Drag not Dragon Quest, uh, House of No Goodness Six, the Lord the Game of Thrones stuff. Not that I recall. Alright, because I feel like I remember him being in one of those kinds of shows. If not Lord of the if not Goodness Six, just some fantasy series like that wasn't. Now I know Ed. Now Ed Sheeran was in an episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I remember that. That was back, like, final season when every episode yeah. had, like, some glaringly obvious celebrity cameo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so, yeah, you've said this book was scary. Uh, did you like it? I did like it. Um, my heart hurt. Oh, yeah, it's very grim. It. Especially towards the back half. There are certain people that I would recommend this book to, and I don't know that any of them are a mother. Yeah, definitely. This is a it's a it's a hard sit at times, and uh, I mean I I found it eminently readable. I think that's really what compelled me to finish it so quickly. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so and I I'm glad you actually brought that up. So I have noticed that books that do not follow a prescribed uh, formula, you know how like I read a ton of romance novels because in essence they are very formulaic. Yeah. Um. If, if a book does not adhere to a familiar formula, it takes me longer to get through it because I have to, because there's no, like, I'm not able to predict what's going to happen. Okay. But so, I, yeah. even though this book did not have a predictable formula, I still got through this book fairly quickly because I only started this book like Thursday. Okay. I, I would say that the previous challenge, uh, Sleeping Giants, was also mm-hmm. pretty unconventional. Yeah. So. But, uh, yeah, we've done pretty well so far this year in terms of, like, staying on top of our reading goals. Yeah. Now, I will say, and I know I've said this before, because my reading goal is 157 books this year, which means I've got to read about 14 books a month. So far for February, I've read one. Okay. So I've got to pick up the pace if I yeah. if I need for me to stay on track to get yeah. to meet my goal. Now, with my reading goal of seventy books by the end of the year, I've so far I've read fourteen, which uh, means I just have to read uh, fifty six more, and mm-hmm. uh, my and I'm technically twenty percent of the way towards that goal, and I'm at my current rate. Think I can finish at least four or five more by the end of February. So. Okay. I feel like I'm, I'm definitely ahead of the curve where that's concerned. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you have anything so, else you wanted to say about uh, Cabin at the End of the World? I don't. 
I mean, I'm, I, I want to watch the movie now. I don't know that I'll make it to the theaters, but... Yeah, it, it'll be out on a rental or streaming sometime. Yeah, or streaming or something. So, um, a, I do plan on seeing this movie at some point. Yeah, here's a funny little anecdote, uh, a tidbit. Uh, the weekend it premiered, uh, Knock at the Cabin was the number one film at the box office, dethroning, uh, I think... Um, avatar for the first time this year wow and in fact avatar was number three at the box office that weekend do you know what was number two 80 what? for brady <laughs> i take it you've heard about 80 for brady yeah like very loosely i i think i have an idea of what it's about i just think it's funny that that usurped avatar well it was fairly close i mean like avatar and it's like what 12th weekend in theaters or yeah. something like that made 11 million dollars and 80 for brady made 12 okay so it wasn't like a total like dethroning it was just sort of how right. it shook out okay and uh i mean avatar is going to be staying in theaters a little while longer at least because it is among the films nominated for best picture and i know they like right. to keep those in theaters up until the ceremony so yeah. There's there's a lot of films I'll be catching up on in the weeks to come. Mm-hmm. Because I think the Oscar ceremony is like mid-March, thereabouts. Yeah, I think that's what you said. Yeah. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad we both enjoyed uh, reading Kevin at the End of the World. Um, like mm -hmm. I said, I'm definitely going to be giving more of Tremblay's stuff a look in light of that. Have we read something by him before? You may have. I don't recall ever having read anything by Tremblay. You might have. I so think he. He might have done like so. A short like when story we had that. So or, like when he. So like when he we did that challenge last year where we did uh, like the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo and no, then that other. I don't. He didn't write either, the other book, did he? Neither of those were him. Okay. I know Evelyn Hugo wasn't. I couldn't remember the other one. Yeah. What, uh, what was it? The seven and a half lives of something hardcastle yeah yeah paul tremblay wrote uh devil's rock he wrote a head full of ghosts paul bearer's club uh, uh yeah i'm not seeing anything here that i recall us talking about on the show so okay yeah but um yeah all right so uh you ready to talk numbers yeah okay, all right nope. so do you, um, I guess I'll go first since I only read the one book. Sure. Um, so I read Cabin at the End of the World uh, for, oh, sorry, that's the wrong year. Okay, for 82,856 words. Um, that brings my year-to-date total up to 880,646 words, which puts me at 8.8% of my 2021 word count. Mm -hmm. And compared to this time, or yeah, to this time last year, I'm I'm about a million words behind. Okay. Well, that's fine. Um, com at this compared to this time last year, I'm about five thousand words behind. Although a lot of mm -hmm. that came from getting a bonus off of uh, Snow Crash, which was a fairly oh, long yeah. book that uh, really helped juice the numbers. So. Uh, if you take that out of the equation, then I'm about 100,000 words ahead of where I was. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm about 20% of the way through my word total for 2020. Okay. And my current word total is 888,586, which actually puts me ahead of you. Oh. So that this might be the first time, I think maybe since uh, early... It's been a while, but this is like one of the few times I've ever been ahead of you in terms of raw word total. Mm-hmm. So, that's an interesting well, we will little have upset. To, we'll have to remedy that for next time. Oh, I'm sure you will. A stare, quit rubbing up against the microphone. Oh, kitty cat. Yep. Oh, by the way, that reminds me, uh, in a couple of days, we're taking our oldest cat, Sammy, in to get some surgery done. Yeah. So, keep him in your thoughts. And, uh, yeah, I guess that only leaves, uh, the next reading challenge to take care of. Oh, wait, we've got the, uh, the bingo thing to settle. The bingo card. Yep. Yeah, bingo card. 
So uh, every week we pick a book that we've read and uh, put it down for like um, one of the categories on our bingo card. Mm -hmm. And um, so far Elizabeth has gotten sci-fi and romance and I have gotten horror and short story collection. Yep. This week I'm taking down essay collection for Slouching to Bethlehem by Joan Didion. And what, and what, I guess, are you doing horror for... Yeah, so mine would be horror for Cabin at the End of the World. Okie doke. So we got those settled. And that we, that gives us each three uh, categories. And it'll still be a couple weeks before we start chancing upon the opportunity to get bingo. Yep. Yeah. Um, let me check your bingo card. You said this is going to be for essay collection? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So now all that's left is to assign a new reading challenge for a month from now. Yep. And uh, I'm going to take a personal route with this one. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm currently engaged in a video game writer's workshop where mm -hmm. we're sort of engaging in exercises to teach us how to write for video games. And yeah. In the spirit of that, I am recommending a, a book about people who make video games it is oh. the novel tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabrielle zevin okay now you've probably seen this book in stores it's like got the big crashing wave on it Mm-hmm. and uh, you're right i it, probably have yeah it was a pretty big book for from last year that uh i started reading and then i fell off but this year i'm gonna make a clean go of it so okay yeah so i look forward to us talking about that cool yep so that uh takes care of all the official business um elizabeth you want to let people know where they can find us sure sorry i have a very needy cat um you can find us on our social media accounts on facebook twitter instagram tiktok and literally club at your words podcast you can also find us at our website at yourwordspodcast.com. And you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to yourwordspodcast at gmail.com. All right. That'll be fine. And yeah. I, as always, I thank you for uh, joining us today. It's been great talking to you, Elizabeth. It's been great talking to you, too. And we hope all y'all listening will continue your own reading along with us and have yourselves a nice time. Yep. Goodbye. Bye.